presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of Common Sense Institute, and I'm your host today. Thank you for joining us. My guests today are Tamara Ryan, a fellow at CSI, and I'm thrilled to announce that just this week, her fellowship was announced as CSI's first ever Coors Economic Mobility Fellowship. Congratulations, Tamara. It's a great organization. Yeah. Through this fellowship, Tamara is exploring topics around economic independence, self-sufficiency, and exploring ways we can incentivize people here in Colorado. Tamara Ryan will be releasing a report in the coming weeks that will focus on how minimum wage policy and other benefits like Medicaid impact the state, employers, and workers. Uh, it's hard to believe one of every four Coloradoans is currently on Medicaid. It's also the largest, if not the fastest growing budgetary item we have in Colorado. CSI believes this fellowship will lead to research that will help us better quantify the cost of the state's growing budget. We can ensure policy incentivizes work rather than trapping individuals in dependency and benefits from the government. Juan Pena is also joining us. He is the Chief Innovation Officer at Cross Purpose, which provided CSI with brand new modeling of the benefit cliff and its impact specifically to low-wage Colorado residents. We will dive more into your organization shortly, Juan, and let me thank you for your help on this project. Tamara, let's get started with you. It's great to have you a part of the team, and I want to start by asking, what does economic mobility mean to you, and how do you want the Coors Economic Mobility Fellowship to inform policy debate here in Colorado? Well, it's great to be here. I think a lot of times when we think about economic mobility, we think just about income. But to me, it's a term that is much more about one's life and how much better one's life becomes as a result of their economic situation. So, you know, increased income is a part of that, but it's also it helps it to look at indicators such as well-being and education and housing and wealth overall. So, you know, those can go up or down. So when we think about mobility, we have a tendency to only think about it increasing. I think part of the work I'll do is to shine a light on the things that prevent mobility, upward mobility, and perhaps even create downward mobility. We're going to look at the impact of increased minimum wage on benefits cliffs, as you mentioned. And we're going to look this year at how education and training can help improve a family's economic mobility. So I'm really excited about diving into a number of topics that I think in general, we don't know, you know, as a public, we don't know a lot about um, and perhaps have opinions about. But I think with um, increased information, we could actually take some action that could improve the lives of many Coloradans. How many people do you think fall into the category of people you're trying to help? We're talking about 10%, 5%, 2%, 3%. What are we talking about as far as people that really could benefit from what you're trying to accomplish? Well, if we look across the state at the number of people who, I, I tend to think of them as vulnerable workers. So, okay. you know, people earning minimum wage, for instance, there are certainly teenagers and college students who are earning minimum wage. But if we remove the people who are early in their work lives, 
from the uh, minimum wage conversation, just as an example, um, we're really talking about people who are the most vulnerable in our communities. They're people with barriers to employment. So if we even, and one of those barriers is a, a criminal background. And the ability to work or get a job when you have a criminal background is very challenging. And a million Coloradans have some form of criminal background, just by way of example. One million out of our population of five yes. million? Well, across the, U, across, the, yeah, across the U.S., a third of U.S. adults have some form of criminal background. Uh, wait a minute, are you talking about parking tickets or are we talking about felons or what are we talking about here? We're talking about all different forms of criminal backgrounds, but at a level, not certainly not parking tickets, but it could be misdemeanors. Oh, it could I was be worried. I was worried because I, you know, <laughs> I had my fair share as a college student. <laughs> I think they're all paid. I don't think we're counting you in this number. But the, the point being that when it's just one indicator, when one has a criminal background, it is an impediment to employment. Now tell me about the Women's Me Project and working with uh, formerly incarcerated uh, women and move them back in the work 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 workplace. Um, you know, one of the uh, issues you always have is recidivism. Um, and how successful are you in helping uh, the ladies not get back into uh, back into prison or avoiding it uh, henceforth when they get out uh, and have a chance to work with you? That seems to be always the test is how can you keep them out once they get out? Well, we start with the premise that all women have the power to transform their lives through employment. And so we work with women, we hire them for a full-time job, and we work with them for six to nine months that help them move back into mainstream employment. They typically have long histories of addiction and incarceration. Often those two are interrelated, domestic violence, homelessness, you know, a wide variety of what we would call barriers to employment. During the time that we work with them, we teach them life skills and job readiness skills so that they can move out into the community into mainstream jobs. Okay, A year stop. after- Stop, stop, yeah. stop, stop. You've, you've said so much and you've packed so much in that. I have to, I have to, what is this process? Lifestyles, what are you talking about lifestyles besides just earning? So what are you talking about lifestyles? Help us out. What we're trying to do is help someone move from chronic unemployment, a typical woman, Women's Being Project hires hasn't had a job longer than a year in her lifetime, though the average age is 38. At the end of her time with Women's Being Project, she moves to mainstream employment in the community. A year after graduating the program, 95 plus percent of women are still employed. The reason that's important is that we know that's, that's that- remarkable, That's remarkable, Tamara, 95%? Yes. That's incredible. Are you having a chance to touch all the ladies that come out uh, from uh, from incarceration so that uh, uh, you have a chance to work with them or are you just working with a small number of them? Well, I, gosh, yeah. I wish we could we uh, we could touch everyone who's you know who have been affected affected by incarceration. Uh, we hire currently about 75 women a year. And we are, so we hire them into our food manufacturing business. So sales create jobs. So we are constantly focused on increasing our sales to create more employment opportunities. And we rely on other organizations in the community to help with this work as well. So you've got, you've got a business and you're training people for production, operations, sales, administration. 
they work with you and then they go out into the labor force and what's the success once they go out into the labor force? Beyond Women's Bean Project, uh, they continue to be employed. They move up the pay scale. So we find that typically they move in their first year up, up $2 an hour in their pay. They often are have increased responsibility in part because what we're trying to do is have help them find what we call a career entry level job. So it's going to be a job with an opportunity for advancement and benefits and where the employer is invested in them being there. So that move up the pay scale and the increased responsibility is a part of what they're hoping for when they take those positions. That was remarkable. Uh, congratulations on what you've done in the organization. Juan. No, the cross purpose is focused on address, addressing economic poverty. One of the issues you pro can probably tell my exchange with Tamara, I'm quite interested in it. And it's one of my, besides education, it's one of my passions. Uh, your website states uh, many nonprofits ask the question, how do we help people in poverty? But you ask a different question. How do we help people get out of poverty? What does it look like uh, for cross purpose? And how do you describe your organization's mission and how do you, you know, how do you accomplish that mission? Earl, thank you so much for uh, letting me uh, be a part of this podcast. I am excited about this conversation and also for CSI uh, and just the research that you all do uh, to really help us be more thoughtful Coloradans as we engage in all of these very difficult and complex conversations. And obviously the issue of poverty is a very complex one, right? I mean, it's just, we've been having endless debates for decades, uh, really generations, and poverty indicators uh, show that things are either at best plateaued, if not getting worse. And so for me, uh, about 15 years ago, I really was thinking through like my own personal life. Like I was in my early 30s, uh, was a mechanical engineer, really successful, really enjoyed doing the engineering work that I was doing. But I felt like there was something deeper that I could do to help uh, my neighbors and society. And so I made a very radical, radical change uh, of careers. And I made the crazy decision to leave my engineering job. And I became a truancy officer at a local elementary school in my neighborhood. And that must have been a pay increase. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I really wanted to uh, understand the problem. I, I wanted to cut through all the noise and really get as close as possible to the problem of poverty. Uh, I have a friend of mine that really influenced me um, early on, and he said, Juan, you cannot solve a problem you don't understand, and you cannot understand from a distance. And I think that's fundamentally part of the problem. Uh, there's too much distance between, you know, researchers, policymakers, politicians, and CEOs, and, and our neighbors that are struggling with low-wage uh, jobs and, and poverty and all that. And so I just wanted to go right to the source, the epicenter of all that. And a local school uh, is a great place to actually touch a lot of lives. So my job for two years was to go to the school and get a list of all the kids that were not in school. And I just made home visits. Uh, so Juan the engineer, I uh, was sitting down in living rooms uh, across my neighborhood. And over those two years, I had hundreds of conversations with single parents and, and got to hear all their struggles. Right? Because when a five-year-old is not in kindergarten, there's a story behind that. I never once met a parent. They didn't care about their child's education. Every single one of them wanted their kids to get a great education. They know that that's the pathway out of poverty, uh, but there are very clear reasons and barriers that I began to understand as to why, you know, uh, absenteeism in school was happening. So 
Talk to a lot of single moms. Talk to a lot of grandmothers that are just heroically trying to keep it together for their grandkids. And like Tamara said, just dads and, and people coming out of the incarceration system. And I got to sit in those living rooms and, and, and really get a, 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 a first person view of all of the different barriers that were um, affecting our neighbors. And so honestly, the biggest thing that I got out of us those two years was that I noticed that for sure all government uh, benefits, all the programs that we have were really designed to help our neighbors in poverty. The same thing goes through a lot of nonprofit work and churches, faith-based communities. We are all really uh, geared to just, you're in poverty, let me help you, let me give you a little bit, let me just help you so that poverty is not as bad as it should be or it could be. But really, at the end of the day, we're just maintaining poverty. And are you, so, are you uh, saying our system is an enabling system? Yeah, it's just an enabling to keep system. People, yeah, exactly. To keep people where they're at, maybe not street homeless, but just above barely making it so that they're not homeless. So how is how how did you decide to start cross purpose with yeah. this mission, and how are you executing the mission? So out of that frustration, I began to ask a different question, which is what you quoted. I really began to say, okay, why are we sending? So many resources to maintain poverty who out here in our city in our state is actually seeking to help our neighbors escape poverty and so i really began asking anybody that i could in government uh in nonprofits, and I, and I and the question that i would pose to them is how do you get somebody out of poverty it's a very simple question and i could not get anybody to give me a real answer to that question well, wait a minute wait a minute i want to back up for a second you already had the grandmothers and the individual saying mm-hmm education yeah. so was your question really one of how do you get these people educated no it's it so so that's a that is a pathway out but like Tamara was saying when you graduate from a dps uh, school per se with a high school diploma but then when you when when somebody comes into our bill into our program i do a reading and math assessment and i often have high school graduates reading at a sixth grade or below math sixth grade or below right so when we have a failure like that I, it's not just like don't get an education we have to like now actually acknowledge how complex it is to get somebody that's got a sixth grade reading level that's a 32 year old how do we get them to actually go and get a career job right and so those are all the challenges that we need that's what it takes to help our neighbors get out of poverty so cross-purpose uh, and what I'm giving my life to is really seeking to answer the second question. How do I help my neighbors escape poverty? And so for the last 10 years, uh, Cross Purpose, we have really been kind of a lab. And I think uh, Women's Means Project, like Tamara, that's why I love working with Tamara as well. That We're asking the same question. She's working mainly with women. Uh, I'm working with 20, 18-year-olds, so 55-year-olds and all that. But we're really fundamentally seeking to find solutions to different demographic groups that work for them so that they can actually escape poverty through work and career development. And I think that's like the biggest uh, nuance for both of our nonprofits. That we're really very much believers in like, you need a career to actually truly exit out of poverty. Okay, I'm, I'm unfortunately very, you know, quantitative guy. So one plus one has to equal two, and there's a process that you go through things. But mm-hmm. I heard you say, and I just wanna make certain that I'm understanding it, is some, we have, training that people can get a job or a skill but they have to first of all be prepared to Mm -hmm. get that training so you will actually help them with education and be it 
math, be it literacy, be it whatever it might be, so they can, in essence, advance then mm -hmm. into the various programs that you have that they can get a a, a, a skill set in, yep. which would be the beginning of a certain trade or or other work area. Am I am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, exactly. Here's a quickly, you know, one plus one way to look at it is look at the higher ed. Go to the community colleges, right, and go and look at people that are enrolling for a medical assistant career track, and go and look at the graduation rates for everybody that goes into that career track. It's just education. I'm offering you a certificate here, right? You turn around and look at like Tamara or Cross Purpose and our organizations, right? Our graduation or completion rates are 4x what a regular community college would do because we are addressing the whole person, right? We have coaches that are actually like in the weeds of people's lives, encouraging them. We have counselors that are actually helping them with the trauma that's in their lives. Uh, it's just a very holistic approach. If somebody's about to go to, to lose their apartment, and they're halfway through our program, it's, it's societally cheaper for us to actually pay the $1,500 so they can actually be stable and finish their program so they can actually now go and have a chance to get a career, right? So we're looking at, at the, uh, like, what are the things we're trying to be very nimble and very specific to each individual to go, what it will it take for you to finish this program? And I'm a big believer, and I tell my people, my neighbors, if you show up in my building every single day and you do what we ask you to do, I will move heaven and earth to get you there, like period, I'm committed to you, right? And that's what we're seeing. Our neighbors are motivated. They want to go and get those high paying jobs, those 22 to $25 an hour jobs. It's just we have to be acknowledging that there's so many barriers that we need to help remove those barriers so they can actually pop through. There's a lot in, in what you're saying I'd like to ask about, but I, I, I don't think this podcast is enough time. But what I would like to know is you have applicants, uh, I think you have, uh, uh, Northeast Denver and I believe uh, South Denver, where you can have applicants. You have applicant time, which we're in it right now, as a matter of fact, if I remember correctly. How many uh, people do you bring in uh, each year for the program? I notice you have, uh, what, seven or eight graduates you show on your website or something like mm -hmm. that. So at one time, how many students do you have or how yeah. many participants at a time? Yeah, we, we currently have two sites, like you mentioned, and each side we serve 240 neighbors a year. So right now we're at 480, uh, and we have plans to go to two different, two more sites. We want to be in Aurora and Arvada in the next two years as well. So by the time we finish that project, we'll be serving well over 800 neighbors a year in the Denver metro area. Let's stick with the 400 you have right now. Yeah. So what would you expect of those 400 to graduate? In other mm -hmm. words, um, stick with it like you said if you show up we'll take care yeah. of you yeah how many of those do you uh, anticipate uh having a chance to graduate with the skill set you're talking about absolutely yeah so we our graduation rate is roughly 70 percent so 70 percent of participants or neighbors that show up day one we are a six-month program uh we are expecting to graduate and for us graduation is a very measurable it's basically do you complete the program do the coaching that we ask you to do. You got a marketable skill. So you actually got something, a certificate in a career track. We have about 12 to 15. And then more importantly, you actually landed a career job. So it's not just like you finished the certificate. Okay. Yeah. You graduated. It's like now did that certificate, did that training translate into an actual entry level career job? So 70% of our neighbors that enter the program are successful in that matrix. Does it cost them anything or is it all? Uh 
Funded no, by, uh, it's, a, it's 100% free. Uh, we uh, That's just a commitment that we have as an organization. Uh, we have one of our core values is expensive love. And uh, we want to love, I believe my neighbors deserve to be loved expensively. Uh, and so, yeah, we do the hard work of raising the money, but it's actually easy to raise money when you have resolves. Okay. I, Money's I, not the this, problem. This is all terrific, and I, I don't want to be the spoiler in this conversation. But it seems to me that... Uh, the system camera we have at the present time, which uh, Juan addressed, is that you know, we have a system that supports people in poverty, as we should have. If you're going to have people having a difficult time, you don't want them out on the streets. You want to be able to support them if we possibly can and take care of them and help them in their in their time of need. But John Early uh, put uh, recent information out, uh, and he's a pretty respected uh, PhD in this area. They said uh, the average family of four in the bottom two quintiles that's uh, subject to uh, various support programs has $50,000 of transfer payments in equivalent in income. Why would they ever sign up for a program like uh, like yours, Tamara, if there's a chance for them to have that kind of a support, financial support system? I think that there, there are a lot of layers there. First of all is that there is a lot more dignity that comes from work than from receiving a, a government support check. And that feeling of self-worth and the model that that shows for one's children is a lot more valuable than that $50,000 a year. And I think the, the perception that people are using the system in lieu of, of employment because they don't want to work, I think is, is perhaps not the right perception. I think what we have and what a what's causing persistent poverty is a gap between wages and self-sufficiency standard. And that's, I think, one of the things I want to um, shine a light on in my fellowship. That just by way of example, in Denver County, for a family of three, which would be an adult with a preschooler and a school-aged child, the self-sufficiency standard is $85,000 a year. And so when we're talking workers who are making minimum wage, which is, you know, $35,000 a year, we have a gap of self-sufficiency. And that's where government benefits come in. And, and really the intention of them is to fill that gap to allow people to support their families while they're working, they're moving up a pay scale. I think that's why the cross a lot of cross purposes work is really great because that's their focus is to help people move into higher paying careers so that they no longer need those benefits. But that gap is between self sufficiency and minimum wage is really where government support needs to come in. One of the things that I was talking with Mandy O'Connell. Uh, who has a radio show, as you know, locally. And she mentioned that she had the experience of going and having a sandwich being prepared for it. And in the midst of having the sandwich prepared, the person looked at the clock uh, and stopped preparing her sandwich and went over and clocked out. And she called the owner of the store and said, what in the world's going on? He said, oh, that's uh, Tony. He can't, he can't work more than 20 or 24 hours. Or all of a sudden his benefits are impacted. I know one of the issues you're going to work on is what benefit cliffs for workers. What does that look like in Colorado and how is that a challenge as far as getting people to be more self-sufficient? Well, I'm excited by this topic because it's the first paper 
that I'll be doing that will be coming out in the next few weeks. And I'm working with Juan at Cross Purpose. Uh, uh, they have a tool that they've developed that actually really illustrates this challenge. The situation we have currently in Colorado, as many of your listeners know, minimum wages increased pretty dramatically over the last several years after Amendment 70 passed in 2016. Minimum wage is still below self-sufficiency wage, A, and B, the benefits are determined based on federal poverty level. So there's a disconnect between local decisions on minimum wage and the levels that qualify people because those decisions or those levels are set at a federal level. So what happens is as our as our wages increase locally, the benefits, the eligibility is determined federally based on federal poverty level, and there's a, a cliff gets created. So while someone today across Colorado minimum wage is thirteen sixty five an hour, in Denver it's seventeen twenty nine an hour this year. Seventeen twenty nine an hour is a level at which not only do people no longer qualify for some benefits, they don't get tapered off of those benefits. They literally get cut off of the benefits. And so what cross purposes model shows is that the net effect in many instances of increased wages is actually an overall decrease or at least no change in a household income. And I think that that's probably surprising to most people. Because one would think that if minimum wage is increasing, especially as it's increased so much over the last several years, that households should be better off. And that's, you know, ultimately supposed to be the reason why we increase minimum wages to increase the money that households have to spend. And that ultimately would go back into the economy. But what we're seeing is that's actually not the case. I unfortunately think I know more about this than I probably uh, am qualified to say, but in the minimum wage area, the studies that I've seen, uh, an awful lot of the minimum wage earners are either second income, second income for a family, or they are a lot of teenagers' uh, workforce. And that workforce is dominated by the people I just mentioned. So you're talking about people who are not teenagers and working their first job or learning. And you're not talking about uh, a family of four where the the second a second person is thinking, I'm just making a little bit of extra money for the family. So you're talking about somebody who's the major wage earner. So why wouldn't you try to differentiate that from just a general comment about we need higher minimum wage? Well, I think that's a great question. And when I'm thinking about minimum wage, I'm removing, you know, at least mentally, but you know, we're working on removing numbers wise teenagers, college students who are part of a, a household, right? Because that, that skews the numbers. How I like to frame it really is that those who are adults, heads of households, who are earning minimum wage are really our most vulnerable workers. They are the people who have barriers to employment. They are people who have come out of incarceration, have histories of addiction, have histories of homelessness, need assistance while they're moving up the pay scale. We're in total agreement. I was just, my question was the, the parsing out of this yeah. versus just the general comment. Juan, I'd appreciate your comment. Yeah, and um, I, no, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation here. Um, the way I look at it is the IRS has an annual wage uh, analysis across the nation, right? And I was shocked several years ago when I looked at that study, and they say that 50% of the American workforce makes 35000 a year or less. Now, 
everyone said, like you said, there's some college students in there, there's probably some teenagers, but at the end of the day, 50% of Americans that are working every day are making less than 35,000. That's 85 million Americans. If you're making less than 35,000, more than likely you're going to need some kind of a government benefit to make ends meet, to pay for your household expenses. And so I think it really needs to begin with really realizing the size of the problem. So that's why to me, number one. Number two, I look at it from the perspective also of usually if you're making less than 35,000 a year and you're an adult in your late twenties, thirties, forties, you're probably as stagnated. Like you're, it's that the statistics on that for you to like actually go ahead and make $30 an hour uh, within three to five years is, is very, there's very low chance of that. So we have big percentage of our low wage workers are just stuck. And we can talk about all the societal reasons for it, right? Some of it's education, failures in, in education, all that. But at the end of the day, they're now stuck there and it costs us billions of dollars to maintain that workforce stuck there at a low wage. So a quick way to look at this is when I look at my program and I use the tool that we created, this financial planner, when somebody comes into our program, I can on the back end calculate how much it's costing government to actually maintain that person at that level, whatever their income is coming in. When they graduate our program with our entry-level career job, I can also backwards calculate how much it's going to cost government to maintain that person there. The difference between what that career job does is it saves us on average $12,000 a year in government expenses, in government uh, Let's make certain I, that, that I am uh, comprehending what you're saying. So I go through a program that you've established, mm-hmm. and the people may be making X, whatever X happens to mm-hmm. be, and you help them understand that if they were to go through this program, how X can become 2X or X can become X plus 15.5X or, mm-hmm. or 3X, but this is a way in which you're helping people who are right now being sustained by government policy yep. and helping them transition out of that by learning a skill set. Mm-hmm. And you've got oh, maybe 10 or 15 skill sets, if I remember looking mm-hmm. at your website correctly, that people can pick up on. In essence, they can achieve what Tamara was so eloquently describing as the challenge. Mm-hmm. Is that, do I understand what you're talking about? Absolutely. Correct. Yes. And, and when I subdivide it into like, Single people versus single parents. Our single parents are saving us eighteen thousand five hundred on average, just by getting a like a career job. Okay, so I'd really like to rethink this whole thing and say, hey, it's actually to our advantage to invest in our low wage worker population to incentivize them to go to night school, go and get extra skills, because the more of them that they start getting higher paying jobs, they're actually saving us. Billions of dollars. Yeah, now we can reinvest uh, that. One, 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 one. And you're you're only working with 400 people. Let's assume that everything you're saying is spot on, and I have incredible enthusiasm for what you're saying. Yeah. And you guys just told me we have a million people in Boulder. The beginning of that, not Boulder, in Colorado. Maybe. Colorado, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Colorado. So, how, what are your thoughts as to? Uh, how do we incentivize some more low-wage workers to get involved with what you're doing? Or are there public policy issues and solutions that would that would enhance what you're talking about? Uh, help us out. Number one, right, we have a million uh, low-wage workers or neighbors in poverty in Colorado. We are already spending billions of dollars, right? So it's not like we, 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 we understand that. We're, right. We understand we, that. We get that, right? 
So what I'm saying, number one, I think is we need policy changes. That we definitely have a system that doesn't reward work. And usually, when when I when I talk to business owners or people that are in the upper middle class, and I explain to them, I show them some of my graphs, and I show them how like there are scenarios where basically if you're a single mom with two kids and you have a Section Eight voucher, and you're making it twenty six dollars an hour, which is an it's a great job, right? Twenty six dollars an hour. If I can show you through my graphs, if you cut your hours to twenty instead of working forty hours to twenty six, you cut your hours to twenty hours, you actually gain eight thousand dollars in net cash income by actually cutting your job in half, right? How am I going to incentivize that parent to actually, hey, go get a twenty-dollar an hour job? Actually, the system's actually saying, oh my God, if you're smart, you should be working half the time. Actually, loving your kid means you're working half time, so you can actually have more money, right? So that is stuff like that is all over our system, and people are really shocked when I show them. Okay, okay, what's you, happening. You, that you're not answering my question, Juan. You, you're explaining the, you're explaining we got a problem. I've got a million people here in Colorado. I'm asking the two of you to tell me what public policy, you've explained the problem well, what yeah. public policy do you think we ought to be thinking about? Or is this going to be the paper that two okay. of you are going to be writing and giving yeah. in a couple of weeks? Go ahead, Tamara. I'll, I'll give you another shot in a minute. Go ahead. You, you go. I, I have an idea. Um, well, I think there's a few things. One is that we need to address the disconnect between the federal poverty level cliffs for benefits and our wages in Colorado. And what that would entail is going to the federal government and asking for waivers or other ways that we can determine eligibility at a more local level. And the fact that it's determined at a federal level and there's such a disconnect between cost of living in various parts of the country, we shouldn't tolerate as states. The second thing I would say, and that hasn't come into into this conversation, is that there are other incentives that have been shown to work to in, increase people's employment, and that one of those is earned income tax credits. And right now there is a bill to in the legislature that would increase the amount for Colorado. Colorado is one of only 29 states that adds to a family's earned income tax credit to adds to the federal tax credit. Um, and so this would increase the amount in Colorado. And child care tax credit goes along with that because those are things that obviously you can only get the, ta the earned income tax credit if you are working. Those are a couple of things that I think we should consider as a state and also have been acknowledged to, to drive employment. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I'm a big believer in work incentives. And so what I would love to do is if there was a way in which we could actually work as a nation to say, hey, the federal system is not working. We need to be more nimble and nuanced at a state level. And if we can get uh, more states to actually be able to make their own choices on how they want to use their government benefit uh, money, what I would do is I would definitely incentivize work. Right. And I would say, hey. If you're, and we can, we can debate, uh, at what point in time do we want people to break even, right? So let's just call it for the sake of this argument at $20 an hour as Coloradans. We say like, if you're making $20 an hour and you're working full time, you deserve to like actually be at break even. Like you should actually, we should make it work so that whatever your expenses are on average for your type of household in your county, we will make it a break even. So if you're working full time and you are negative 3000 through our calculations, 
we're going to give you a $3,000 working center. So you're at break even. And then for every dollar you make after that, you get to keep 70% of that, right? We'll take 30% and you keep 70%. I believe simple incentives like that. Now people can actually go, okay, if I go from $20 to $25 an hour, I'm going to go to night school. I'm going to go, you know, I'm a CNA. I want to be a MA and I want to be a nurse or whatever. Like you can actually see how much of that money you're going to keep. You can actually calculate it. Like we just have a calculator online and you go like, yep, this is how much I'm going to keep. Right now, the system shows you can't even calculate that. You don't even know what you're probably going to be worse off sometimes. Right. So I want to bring real clarity and I want to incentivize people to actually go after higher paying jobs. You sound like a mechanical engineer, Juan. I am. I know. I know. <laughs> and, and, but here's the thing, Earl, that's going to save us money. Of course. I'd rather course. write a three thousand dollar check for somebody to go to night school so that in eighteen months they're actually now making twenty five bucks an hour. They're actually now helping other people, right? We need to find a way to get people up the chain and making more money in our state. Neither one of you mentioned anything about uh, you know, people like myself that employ people. Why wouldn't you uh, try to get public policy that created some business business tax credits? For training people, taking some risk and training some people uh, to supplement what you're talking about or to even complement what you're talking about. You're talking about a million people in Colorado. Mm-hmm. The two of you are doing marvelous things uh, with uh, 475, if I got my numbers correct. I don't know how to replicate that in a, to a million people, but maybe you can get the supplement from uh, business tax credits uh, to, to kind of supplement what you're doing. Just a thought. I'm not trying to solve the problem. I'm just reacting to what you're saying. There are a couple things I'd like to comment on. One is that some of those tax credits do exist. And so perhaps the answer is that we need to increase the uptake of those for employers and maybe improve the incentives. So for there are tax credits for businesses that hire people who are released from incarceration, for instance. Uh, I don't know what the what the use of those is, but you know, there it, we are working hard. One of our other initiatives as an organization is to improve fair chance hiring and you know have encourage employers to hire based on talent and potential rather than background. The second thing I want to You sound like a coach <laughs> recruiting a team. You're looking for potential and you're gonna do yes. that, huh? Well, isn't that what isn't that what employment is really all about? We're hiring the people I, that I we so. think have the greatest potential. Yeah. Um, the other thing, though, to keep in mind is that when benefits decrease and minimum wage increases, we are putting more of the cost. So we're transferring costs from government to employer. So I think, to your point, providing more incentives for employers would resonate because what we what we are in effect doing is costing the employers more, both in wages, but also what we're transferring is the cost, Where, whereas government pays more when wages are lower, as wages increase and government pays less, the onus falls on the employers. And so more incentives for employers, I think, at the time is ripe, because I know employers are feeling the increased wages in Colorado. Well, we also have, as, as I think both of you know, uh, when I wrote these notes down, but if from a free enterprise perspective, this is, let me let me give you my sense of it. Okay, we have uh, the U.S. economy is in a bit of a stagnant phase, and one of the problems for potential GDP growth is growth in labor force. Seems to me what you all are talking about is how can we supplement the growth in labor force by training people. We've got a low participation rate relative to historical levels. You're suggesting to me anyway that, the, that you would help increase that 
participation rate. You're also saying if we can get people trained, we're going to have a more productive labor force. Well, if you have a labor growth rate and you have the and you have productivity growth rate, guess what? You have a growing economy. The other thing is uh, you're hitting right at the heart of where the economic viability of this country can be enhanced if we can take people that will be better educated, more productive, and get into the labor force. My God, you're solving a problem that we've got uh, two or three decades looking at where we could have stagnant employment growth, I'm sorry, economic growth, but you could be solving a part of that problem by resolving this particular issue you're talking about. I'm looking at it as a self-serving business guy. You're saying, hey, go for it. I think this is an answer for all of us that helps a real win-win-win. I can't thank the, the two of you enough. Please go ahead, Juan. I want to Carol, I just wanted to add one thing. Here's my observation as a practitioner. Uh, you know, I've had tons of conversations over the last two years with right-wing uh, and left-wing, kind of like part of our political system. And here's where I think the discussion needs to be nuanced. When I go back to those 85 million Americans that are working already right now, making less than 35,000 a year, right? And are suffering. And they're working for all of these businesses that, you know, that you represent. There's probably like, I don't know how many, 10 million unemployed people that are not in, like they're actually not working. I don't know what the number is, but whatever the number is. The left wants to solve the problem for everybody. And so they're not nuanced enough in the solutions that we need to actually solve it. So the right, rightfully so, wants to begin by solving the problem with those 85 million that are working, that are suffering, right? And, and, and I feel like in the conversation, if we can bring people from both sides and say, like, let's really have a robust conversation about solving the problem for those who are already working to make it worth it for their households to continue to work and add productivity and value to businesses. I think we can bring people from the left and the right together to have some of this like work incentive conversations. But it's a communication problem. And unfortunately, at a federal level, we can't even begin to have the conversation, right? Because we just start throwing grenades at each other and all that. And and I'm just starting to say, like, can we begin to get a coalition together to look at those 85 million Americans? And I think we can do that and have very sensible solutions that people on both sides go like, that makes sense. Boy, are you, that's a great lead in to the report that you all are going to be put, putting together and uh, for CSI. I, I think anybody listening to the podcast is going to be enth- enthusiastic to listen to what you come up with as far as what the policymakers, business leaders, and community needs to take into account. And that's going to be part of your research. Uh, and what you, the two of you provided today's podcast is going to give us, uh, I think, all the, a lot of incentive to look for that report. Tamara, do you have any closing remarks? Well, I look forward to sharing this information in a way that is is actionable. That's spot on, Tamara. Uh, Juan, any closing remarks? Yeah, no, I am really excited about the research that Tamara is doing. And um, I think we are in a situation right now as Coloradans that we cannot afford to actually be ignorant about what is happening to our economy and to our neighbors. Uh, and I think uh, the work that you are at CSI are doing in help people like Tamara look at, and I look at Tamara as like a scholar and a practitioner, and she really truly understands the problem, and given her a platform to actually help all of us to really truly understand in a practical way, it's only going to help our state, uh, and it's going to help the conversation that is so important. Thank you so much. I admire the two of you and your projects and your success. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.